The scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews 11.29 and Exodus 14.10-31. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now Exodus 14, starting in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them, and a pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. When the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. And uh, good morning again and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. I have uh, had the longest 
morning ever today. Just a little daylight savings humor for you. Uh, We are uh, continuing our sermon series through Hebrews 11 this morning called By Faith. And uh, what we have been doing each week is looking at one of the Old Testament saints mentioned in Hebrews 11, going back to their story in the Bible, considering their faith, connecting it to our own faith, and then always looking forward to the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And today we aren't looking at just one person, we're actually looking at people, specifically the people who crossed the Red Sea, the Exodus Israelites. So as we look more closely at their story and their faith, we will have three points listed for you in your booklet. Uh, Slavery, redemption, and remembrance. And so let's begin with our first point, slavery. As Christians living in the New Testament era as we are, uh, we all know what the main salvation event of our faith is, right? What is the main salvation event of our faith? the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the event that our faith centers on. That's why Easter is so prominent in the church calendar. But prior to Jesus' time, before his death and resurrection, if you were to ask someone from the people of God what the main salvation event of their faith was, do you know what they would have said? The Exodus. That God delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. That God delivered his people from slavery. You see, the Exodus is the salvation event that sets the pattern of salvation. You know, even though we now look to Jesus and his death and resurrection as the source of our salvation, the Exodus and the Exodus story sets the stage. The Exodus sets the pattern of salvation. So we can learn a lot about our own salvation, even as Christians in the New Testament era. We can learn a lot about our own salvation, about the gospel, by looking back to the Exodus and the people that God saved through it. So the first thing that we need to ask is, what exactly did God save his people from in the Exodus? What were the people saved from? Well, they were saved from slavery. You see, the the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. If you remember last week's sermon about Joseph, his story ended in Egypt. And, you know, eventually the descendants of Jacob and Joseph and his brothers grew in the land of Egypt until they were a large nation. And then we read in Exodus 1 that a later pharaoh perceived uh, them to be a threat And so, because he perceived them to be a threat, he enslaved the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. And uh, he set taskmasters over them. He afflicted them with heavy burdens. He was ruthless. He made their lives bitter with hard service. He made them slaves, working with brick and mortar, working in the fields, not freely, but as slaves. So that's the first thing to understand about God's salvation. It's a freeing from slavery. Salvation is about being released from the bondage of slavery. And slavery is what God brought the people of Israel out of through the Exodus. And slavery is what God brings you out of through Christ. Do you see that? Do you see how? 
It's not just the people of the Exodus who were brought out of slavery. If you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, then your salvation, your redemption, the gospel, brings you out of slavery as well. Do you see what your slavery was? Your slavery was to sin. You were a slave to sin. Sin was a taskmaster afflicting you with heavy burdens. It was ruthless. It was making your life bitter with hard service. You know, before we were saved by Christ, we were enslaved to sin, which meant that we were unable to not sin. You have to excuse the double negative. But before we were saved by Christ, we were unable to not sin, just like a slave in Egypt was unable to not work. We were not able to not sin. Because of that, we deserve God's wrath. God is perfectly holy and good and righteous, and under God's law, as those enslaved to sin, we were guilty. We were objectively guilty and deserving condemnation and God's wrath. I mean, that's a a pretty bad situation to find yourself in, right? Being unable to stop doing the things that deserve God's wrath. That means you're unable to avoid God's wrath. Like, have you ever been caught red-handed? You know, not not falsely accused, not not accused, but they lack proof. Caught red-handed. Caught dead to rights. You know what you did was wrong. The person who saw you knows what you did was wrong. You know that they know. You're done for. It's over. They got you. You're guilty. You justly deserve to be punished for whatever it is you did. That's your situation before God. You know. He knows. You know that he knows. That's your situation when you're enslaved to sin. And so for some of you here this morning, that's actually your present reality. You know, you don't rest on Christ for salvation. You don't believe the gospel, and so you're still enslaved to sin. You're still enslaved to a ruthless taskmaster who, no matter how hard you work for, you're never set free from. And this may be a little bit of an oversimplification, but there tend to be two reasons why people don't believe the gospel. The first type of person doesn't really think that they're that bad. Sure, you're not perfect, but more or less, you're a good person. And as a more or less good person, you don't really feel like you're guilty. You don't really feel like you need to rest on Christ for salvation. And if that's you, you know, I get it. I I have that tendency in me as well. But when we look at Scripture uh, for some sort of standard of what would be good enough, I want you to see that you don't meet the standard no one does. And so if we consider the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, if you were to make your way through them, you know, you might think you know, these are mostly rules for certain types of behavior, what we should do, what we should not do. Things like honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And for the most part, you may think, I typically keep those commandments. I do what I'm supposed to. But then you'll get to the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Okay, that's an interesting one, because suddenly it isn't an external requirement, like no stealing, it's internal. It's about my heart. 
It's about how I feel. Well, how can I control that? I mean, everybody covets sometimes, right? Consider some chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus sort of picks up where this Tenth Commandment left off our hearts. And Jesus takes that and goes even deeper. He says, don't just avoid murder. Don't even be angry. Yikes, okay, I I get angry sometimes. Don't just avoid adultery. Don't even look at someone with lustful intent. Good luck with that in today's sex-saturated society. Love your enemies. Love them? Not just don't return evil for evil, but actively love my enemies? Do not be anxious about anything. Anything? Well, how can I help that? Some things just make me anxious. I get nervous sometimes. And so what you'll see, to put it bluntly, is that you're a slave to sin because your sin goes deeper than just your actions. It goes as deep as your heart. You are a a slave to sin in your heart. Everyone sort of seems to be. There's something wrong within us. We're unable to not do those things that Scripture says not to do in our hearts. It seems like we have to do them sometimes. Do you see how you're still a slave to sin? Okay, I said there are two types of people who don't believe the gospel. The first doesn't really think that they're that bad, but the second type of person knows that they're that bad. But they don't think that there's any chance they could find freedom from what enslaves them. They don't think that there's any way they could be forgiven. You know, I was talking through the Ten Commandments. You maybe thought to yourself, you can stop right there. I've already done some of that. I have already been guilty of lying, of stealing, of cheating, and killing. You don't have to talk about my internal life. You don't have to talk about my heart. I already know that I'm guilty, and I will never forgive myself for the things that I have done. And that's how I know there's no way God could forgive me for the things I've done. If that's you know, how you're feeling this morning, I actually have very good news for you. God is more than ready to forgive you. God is ready to redeem you. That takes us to our our second point, redemption. I had to uh, take my car in this week to get some work done on it, and my wife, Holly, was emphatic that I use a coupon we had received in the mail. She was like, don't forget to use the coupon. Night before, the morning of, texting me in the middle of the day, repeatedly reminding me, don't forget to use the coupon. Because the coupon saves us Money, you know, the the service normally costs, I actually don't know, but let's say the service normally costs $200. But the coupon, if we use the coupon, we could save $50. The coupon, in a sense, buys back $50. And that's why, you know, we'll sometimes use the word redemption or redeeming when we talk about coupons, because coupons buy something back. In our case, it was money. The, The $50 were redeemed by using the coupon. The Exodus story is also a redemption story. God is buying back his people from slavery, just like the service center had our money, Pharaoh had God's people. But unlike our coupon, which could only buy back 25%, God intended to buy back 100%. God intended to redeem all of his people. And so let's look a little more closely at his redemption. You know, as I 
highlighted in the first point in the Exodus story, in our passage in Exodus 14, God brings the people out of slavery in Egypt, and that's the first part of this pattern of salvation. It's a freeing from slavery. The people were enslaved, but they left behind their slave lives and walked out of Egypt. But if you're familiar with the story, uh, there's a major obstacle in the way. The Red Sea. The Israelites are journeying out of Egypt, and they come up against the Red Sea, and there's no way to cross. And to make matters worse, Pharaoh and the Egyptians have changed their mind about letting them go, and they're now chasing them to re-enslave them or possibly even kill them. So the situation for them is hopeless. It's impossible. There's no way that the Israelites can get away from their enslavers. And that's kind of a second part of the pattern of salvation in Exodus. It's impossible. Or I should say, it's the impossible becoming possible. It's what is impossible with humans being possible with God. So if you're here this morning, you're feeling like that second type of person before who believes that in light of all you've done wrong, in light of all that's still wrong with you, it is impossible for God to forgive or redeem you. You're right. Except you're wrong. You're right from a human perspective. There's no way that's possible. But you're wrong because what is impossible from a human perspective is possible with God. That's what the Exodus shows us. And of course, if it's impossible with humans, then what does it require? It requires God's grace. Because nothing the Israelites could do would be enough to save themselves. They needed God's grace. They needed God to bring about something that they could not earn. That's exactly what happened. In our Exodus 14 passage, when the Israelites realize the impossibility of their situation, they, they start to freak out. I guess when you're, you're freaking out, you say funny things, or at least this is funny to me. And in verse 11, the people say to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Like, come on, Moses, if we're going to die anyway, couldn't you have at least saved us the trip? Moses, in verse 14, says this, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you seem today, see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You know, the, the Israelites are like, Moses, what do we do? And what does he say? He says, what do you need to do? Nothing. You don't need to do anything. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and just watch the salvation that the Lord is going to bring for you today. The Lord is going to fight for you. Just be quiet and watch. And you know what happens? Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The sea was divided, and there was a path of dry land for the people to cross over through. God, in his grace, made what was impossible possible. He made a way for salvation And just like he did for the Exodus Israelites, in his grace, he's made the impossible possible for us, too. He's made a way for salvation for us. As I said, we were all slaves to sin, unable to not sin. 
And so constantly breaking God's law, unable to stop, and therefore deserving condemnation, God's righteous punishment. But in his grace, he has made a way for him to remain a righteous judge and for you to avoid condemnation, which sounds impossible, right? Normally, it would be. You know, judges who let guilty people off are bad judges. But in this case, all of your guilt is because of your sin against the judge. And the judge has chosen himself to provide a mediator, the Son of God, Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the God-man, fully human, fully God, perfectly righteous, and therefore a perfect mediator. Just like Moses was the mediator between the people of Israel and God who pled to God on behalf of the people, who raised his hand out over the seas before the Lord cleared the path. Jesus is our mediator, except he's able to mediate a lot more than crossing the Red Sea. He's able to mediate in such a way that we cross over from slavery to sin into slavery to righteousness. He's able to mediate in such a way that we cross over from servants to cruel masters to adopted children in God's household. He's able to mediate in such a way that we cross over from eternal condemnation to eternal life. Jesus, the mediator between us and God, and as one who stands between you and God, between guilty humanity and the righteous judge, he absorbs the punishment that you deserve. And so, When God looks at Jesus, he sees our sin, and the punishment for sin goes toward Jesus. And when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness, and he says, there's nothing to condemn here anymore. Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You come before the judge knowing you've been caught red-handed, and in a miraculous turn of events, he says, you're free to go. There's nothing to condemn here anymore. But there is still more to this pattern of salvation. You know, not everyone gets to hear God say that there's no condemnation. Only those who are in Christ. And not everyone made it safely across the Red Sea that day. Only the Israelites. And so what makes the difference? Who gets to cross the Red Sea safely? Who gets to be in Christ? Well, it's simple. Our Hebrews 11 passage lays it out for us. Hebrews 11.29, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Do you see the difference? It's faith. It was the people who crossed the Red Sea by faith that were saved. And it was for lack of faith that the Egyptians, when they did the exact same thing, were drowned. The difference was their faith. And so part of the pattern of salvation is faith. It was faith that the Israelite it was faith by faith that the Israelites appropriated the salvation that God had accomplished for them. And so it's probably worth you know pausing for a moment to talk a little more about the nature of this saving faith. And this won't be anything that I haven't said before, but just reminding us how to think about saving faith. And so if you'll remember many, many weeks ago, several weeks ago, I shared that theologians typically will say that there's three components to saving faith. There's knowledge, there's assent, and then there's trust. 
And so you have to have knowledge. You have to know the content of the gospel. Otherwise, it's a non-starter. If you don't even know what the gospel message is, uh, then that's the end of it. But So you have to have knowledge. You have to know the content of the gospel message. But knowledge alone is not enough. You also have to assent to it. You have to believe that it's true. You know, someone could know what the gospel message is, but reject it as false. And so you have to have assent. You have to believe that it's true. But even assent isn't enough, because demons believe true things about God, but they hate him for those true things. They set themselves against it because of it. And so saving, saving faith requires more than knowledge, more than assent, but one last step, also trust. You have to entrust yourself to God, to Jesus, to the gospel of Christ. And on you know, that last component, trust, that's likely where the Egyptians fell short of saving faith. You know, they, they saw all the same things the Israelites saw. They saw the sea parting. They saw that there was dry land to cross. They believed what their eyes saw. They didn't say, oh, that's just an optical illusion. They saw the sea part and really believed that it was parted to the point that they took a step onto the dry land between the walls of water on both sides. But they did not have saving faith because they didn't do any of those things out of a sense of trusting in the Lord. They stepped between the walls of water in order to actually to stop the Lord's salvation. They didn't entrust themselves to God. They set themselves against him. And so what happened to them was that they were drowned. They didn't make it across. So maybe a a hard-to-swallow lesson in this is that it's totally possible to do all the right things on the outside and still be lost. You know, the, the Israelites and the Egyptians both did the exact same thing externally. They walked between the walls of water, but... Obviously, their trusts and loyalties were in radically different places. And one group was saved, and one group was drowned. It's totally possible that while on the outside you look like you practice the faith of other Christians, on the inside you might not actually be entrusting yourself to God. You might actually be aligning yourself against him, just using him for your own ends. You know, an unmistakable part of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is confronting overly religious people, Pharisees, older brother types. And what we see is that Jesus points out there are people who have the outward appearance of faith, but in their hearts, they haven't entrusted themselves to God. Uh, There are people who honor Jesus with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. If you're realizing that that's maybe you today, it's not too late But you need to repent of that and believe in the gospel. Admit your slavery. Admit the false gods you've entrusted yourself to. And today, fully entrust yourself to the true God. You don't have to continue on like the Egyptians. Now, the Israelites, on the other hand, because they had faith... They did make it across. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. They had saving faith. And I want you to notice something about their saving faith. You know, earlier in our Exodus 14 passage in verses like 11 and 12 or so, the Israelites were horrified. They're saying things like, we should have never left Egypt. We are surely going to die now. Not exactly the picture in your mind of uh, faith, probably. You know, the Israelites were scared. They had a lot of fear. But when the seas were parted, 
They walked forward in faith. They walked across. In response to God's gracious action, they walked between the walls of water by faith. But it's pretty unlikely that their fears were immediately assured, right? Like if they were scared seeing the Egyptians pursue them from the edge of the sea, they were probably still scared seeing the Egyptians pursue them as they walked across the sea. And what's more, they were probably looking to their left and their right, and these massive walls of water are hanging over them, and they're thinking to themselves, I'm going to die. This is how I die. Those walls of water could collapse on me at any moment. And so my point in all this, as I've said before, is that it's, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. I'm sure many of the Israelites had little faith that crossing the Red Sea was going to work, but whatever little mustard-sized faith they had, it was enough to take that first step forward and then another and then another until eventually they were on the other side, resting in God's salvation, not because of how strong their faith was, but because of the object of their faith, not because of how strong their faith was, but because of how strong their God was. And so the people with imperfect faith were saved. They were enslaved. God let them out of slavery. They reached an impossible obstacle in the Red Sea, but God in his grace made the impossible possible, and he opened up a way for salvation, a way for the people to cross. With imperfect faith, they reached the other side by God's grace through faith. And so again, if you're here, And you can barely believe that God would ever forgive and redeem you. That's enough. Barely believing is enough. God will work with that. Jesus says that faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. And so if you barely believe, it's enough. You can receive God's forgiveness and redemption with that. Or if you're here and you're you're barely believing for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time, for the millionth time. It's still enough. God has never let you go before because of the strength of your faith, and God will never let you go now. You are in the right place. And so draw near to God. He will draw near to you. You know, one of the quickest responses in the Gospels from Jesus is to the prayer of a, made by a father of a demon-possessed son. And the, the father says, I believe Help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't say, come back to me when you only believe. No, he casts out the Spirit right then. You both believe and don't believe, and that's enough, Jesus says to him. And that's what he's saying to you too. Barely believing is enough. Now as we wrap up this point, I've, I've been focusing on what God saved his people from. What God redeemed his people from. But there's another question that needs to be asked. What did God save his people to? What did God redeem his people to? Because salvation and redemption are not just from something. Salvation and redemption are also to something. When the Israelites reached the other side of the Red Sea, God wasn't like, well, now that that's finished, see you guys later, right? That wasn't the end of redemption for them. God still had more redeeming that he intended to do. And a major part of bringing it about centered on the people remembering what he had just done for them in the Exodus. And so that takes us to our final point, remembrance. 
In uh, the film Memento, the main character, Leonard, sets out to avenge the death of his wife. The only problem is that he has enterograde amnesia. Because of an altercation the night his wife was killed, uh, he suffered a head injury. And so he can remember his life from before the incident, but ever since that day, he's only been able to remember about 15 minutes at a time. He essentially has no short-term memory. And so what he does is he covers his body in tattoos with facts that he's learned about who killed his wife. And he takes Polaroid pictures of people that he meets along the way and writes notes about them on the pictures. And all of this is so that when he inevitably forgets what he's learned in the past, and what he's learned in the past 15 minutes and beyond— he can later remember and continue on with his mission to avenge the death of his wife. Because, of course, in order for Leonard to know what to do now, he has to remember what's happened in the past. There have been you know, many perspectives on what the root of all sin is. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, says that the root of all sin is pride. Martin Luther says that the root of all sin is unbelief. Uh, You can maybe say Tim Keller says that it's idolatry. And I tend to think that these are all helpful perspectives on the root of all sin and that one isn't necessarily right and the other's wrong, but they each help us to see the sin beneath our sins. But I want to offer one more perspective on the root of all sin. I think it's overlooked. Forgetfulness. Forgetting the gospel. Forgetting God's grace. Forgetting God's salvation. And I don't mean like amnesia, like you suddenly have no idea what the gospel or grace or salvation even are. But I mean forgetfulness as in it doesn't play a role in your day-to-day life. You come to some sort of complicated situation, to some temptation or whatever, and you don't let the gospel or grace or salvation have any bearing on how you handle it. You, you forget about it. It's irrelevant. It doesn't even come to mind. That's what I mean when I say that forgetfulness can be a root of our sin. And here's why I say that. Uh, If you read through the Old Testament and and the whole Bible, really, um, there is an awful lot of focus on not forgetfulness, but its opposite, remembrance. It comes up time and time again. Sometimes it's quite explicit. Deuteronomy 15.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today, goes on with some commands. Sometimes it's implicit, like at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 starts off saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and then the rest. It's implying to remember that. There's even this Old Testament creed, you could call it, at the end of Deuteronomy, that the Israelites were supposed to memorize so that they could remember their story. And it went like this. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great and mighty and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember this. Remember that. Remember that you were a slave that the Lord your God redeemed. 
this emphasis on what to remember occurs over and over again. And it seems to play a major role in how God wants to complete his work of redemption in us. You know, like I said, once the Israelites made it across the Red Sea, their redemption wasn't over yet. They had been redeemed from slavery, but now God had, intent, had intended to redeem them to something. God wanted to take these broken down people and build them up into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, the household of God. He wanted to give them an identity. He wanted them to bless all the nations of the world. He wanted them to be a seed of God's kingdom and its values growing in this fallen world. And it seems like nearly every time he was going to command them about what they should do or how they should live or what they should be like, he would first instruct them to remember what he had already done for them. Because God's grace always comes before his commands. God's salvation always comes before your obedience. Or to flip the phrasing, commandments come after grace. Obedience comes after salvation. But if we were to continue to follow the story of the Exodus Israelites, beyond our Exodus 14 chapter, we would see that they often struggled to remember. They were often forgetful. Just like the fears in our passage uh, that they had before they crossed the Red Sea, you know, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? All those fears that the people had before crossing the Red Sea, they continue to have them after crossing the Red Sea. And a little while later, in Numbers 13, uh, when the Israelites are so close to entering Canaan, the promised land, they get nervous again because the spies that they had sent to scope out the promised land come back and say that the people who are currently in the land are strong and their cities are large. And how do the Israelites respond? Do they say, remember, we were slaves in the land of Egypt under the mighty hand of Pharaoh, and the Lord our God delivered us from the house of slavery with an even mightier hand and an outstretched arm. If he did what he's promised before, won't he surely do it again now? Do they say that? No. They grumble. And they say in Numbers 14, we wish that we had died in the land of Egypt. We wish that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land just to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. They're forgetful. They don't remember. And of course, this is the point when God finally says, okay then, none of you who saw how I worked in Egypt will enter the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb who are faithful. The rest of you, you're going to die in the wilderness before I ever let my people enter the promised land. Now, it's easy to be pretty hard on the Israelites. You know, how could they forget? But let's be honest, we're pretty forgetful too. You know, like when we were first saved or after a particularly rich season of deepening our relationship with the Lord, we may later come to a point where we realize that living in this world as a Christian is difficult. We may realize that living in this world as a Christian brings with it persecution or danger or inconvenience. And we think, man, it would be easier if I weren't even a Christian. You, know, you ever think that? You ever feel that way sometimes? Life would be so much easier if I were not a Christian. 
maybe I should go back to the way life was before I was a Christian. Maybe I should go back to living in slavery. Do you ever think that? Do you ever feel that way? We, we only have thoughts like that because of our forgetfulness. You've forgotten what life was like before Christ. You've forgotten what it was like to be a slave to your sin, unable to stop and under the guilt of condemnation. What a horrible way you had to live in before. You don't want to go back to that. Returning to enslavement is a death sentence. And so instead of forgetting, you must remember. While you were a slave to sin, Christ died for you. While you were a slave to sin, wholly unable to stop breaking Jesus' heart, he died for you because he loves you. And now you've been set free from sin so that you can serve God. You can live in fellowship with him. You're no longer unable to not sin. You're able to not sin sometimes. You can serve God. You can do things that please God. You can be sanctified. You can see eternal life, our promised land. So we must remember. So let me just end on a real practical note. What are some ways that we can practice remembrance? I'll give you four. There are many more, but here are four. First is corporate worship. What we're doing right now, this is basically a 75-minute reminder of the gospel, of the grace of Jesus Christ for you, right? It's gospel-shaped. And of course, what do we do near the end of the service? The Lord's Supper, which Jesus commands us to do in what? Remembrance of him. This whole thing right now is about remembering. You know, second, and uh, you know, I'm glad that Dr. Kim is not a homiletics professor, because this would be points off for such a lazy sermon application. Don't tell Dr. Doriani. But the other means of grace, prayer, fellowship, reading the scriptures— you know, I just recently made the Bible app widget on my phone as big as it can be. And so every day there's a random verse of the day that's in my face. It doesn't depend on me going to look at it. Like I'll tell you what today's is right now. Face ID. Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A light to my path. Scripture daily reminding us, helping us to remember the ordinary means of grace, prayer, fellowship, reading scripture. That's the second one. Third, I uh, want to recommend a book that's helped me. There's probably many good books in this vein, but here's one that's helped me recently. It's called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. It's an easy read, and essentially what she does is work through the mundane parts of her day. You know, making the bed, brushing your teeth, eating leftovers, checking email, sitting in traffic, drinking tea, etc. And she connects all these ordinary mundane things that you're going to do every day anyway, and she connects them to God's presence in order to help you remember in the mundane parts of your day that God is present. God is with you for your entire day. So Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. And then finally, and this is a big one, remember your story. God has worked graciously and miraculously to bring you to himself. How did he do that? What was your 
proverbial crossing of the Red Sea moment? What seemed impossible that God made possible in your life? Who did he put in your path? What seemingly normal means did God use graciously in your life? I don't know if you caught this in the Exodus 14 passage, but it says that the water was separated by an eastern wind. And so was it the wind that separated the seas, or was it God that separated the seas? It was both. God was behind the wind. And so what's, what's a wind in your life? What's something that seems natural, but we know God was behind it? Remember your story. You were a slave, but Christ redeemed you. How did he do that for you? How did he bring it about that you entrusted yourself to him and his death and his resurrection? Remember God's presence and grace in your story. You were a slave, but Christ redeemed you. And so you are free, free to keep walking forward in faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you are able to rescue us from slavery. We were in an impossible situation, Lord. And yet you are in the business of making impossible things possible. And so we Thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us with our remembrance. How quickly we forget what you have done to redeem us. We ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, through means of grace, through seemingly natural means, you would help us to daily remember you and the salvation that you have brought about through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.